Welcome into the Wednesday Bible study from the Rick and Bubba Broadcast Plaza and Teleport. I'm honored that you would take time to be with us. Uh, I do want to make a couple of programming notes before we dive into this week's lesson. Next week will be vacation, uh, so there will be no new Bible study here next week. Now, anytime I'm on vacation and we don't have a current uh, Bible study for you on Wednesday or whichever time you normally listen to the or whatever time you listen to the uh, the podcast or watch the YouTube archive, uh, it'd be a great time for you to go back and maybe pick up uh, lessons that you may have missed. If you say, well, I've got all the episodes of The Unsaved Christian, don't need to catch up on that. Well, you can go to BurgessMinistries.com or you can go to the Rick and Bubba YouTube channel and click on Playlist. You might go back and find a Bible study that you missed that you would like to listen to uh, next week or watch. Uh, certainly uh, up to you. Another programming note I want to make, uh, because I think that you know, I, you know, and I can be guilty of this sometimes, especially when I'm going through books and commentaries. Um, and sometimes I will unpack something, uh, not realizing or forgetting, because I've read through this book once before, um, is that uh, maybe I expanded on a chapter more than the author intended because he was going to expand on it in a later chapter. And I think I did that uh, concerning chapter nine, which would be the next Bible study that we do. I think we have unpacked the sinner's prayer and and uh, the problems with that, but also the, the, the defending of it to a degree. I really unpacked that pretty well already, and it seems like, uh, with all due respect to uh, Pastor Dean and Sarah, that we, we kind of go through that and repeat ourselves again in Chapter 9. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Chapter 9 if you're reading uh, with me, and I'm going to go ahead and go to Chapter 10 uh, whenever we get back, which would be two weeks from today if you're watching this um, on Wednesday, the seventeenth of June, uh, and then I, so I'm gonna do. I may do a little bit of chapter nine, and then I'm gonna do all of chapter ten. So I just kind of want to make you aware of that because I think a lot of chapter nine we covered pretty well uh, just a few uh, lessons ago. So just want to make you aware of that. Let's uh, let's let's talk a minute about this weekend. If you're if you're watching this or listening to it on the week of Father's Day, Father's Day is coming up for all the men. Uh, that are part of this Bible study, I just want to remind you again, especially in the times that we're living in, uh, when you, you think about the influence that God has given a man, and every piece of, of Christian research that has ever been done uh, always comes back to the same conclusion, that the influence that God has given the man uh, and, and the man of the house cannot be replaced by anyone. Uh, and, and so just, just remember that. I, I was looking at one of the studies with the things that we have going on in our country right now. We keep talking about, you know, certainly some of our racial strife that is continuing and, and, and the, the people talking about privilege and be talking about setbacks and this road is tougher for this person and, than it may be for this person. Did you know, as we always talk about, true equality is always found at the foot of the cross, everyone in equal need of redemption but there's another thing that, that studies continue to show concerning Father's Day. And if we want to have these kind of conversations around our country, we certainly need to be willing to talk about this. There is no greater insult uh, that, that is put in front of someone, uh, the, a bigger obstacle that someone has to overcome. And certainly, under the grace of God, uh, people can overcome it. But every study shows over and over again, when a child is raised in a home with no father, are raised in a home where a father may be present but still emotionally and spiritually absent, there's no greater obstacle to be in place to be placed in front in front of a little girl or a little boy. Uh, it, it, matter of fact, studies show regardless of ethnicity 
Uh, if you have a child that's raised in a house that features uh, a father who is involved in those children's lives, that those children pretty much end up in the same place. Uh, and, and, and if you have children who are sitting there in houses where there are no fathers, they pretty much have the same problems, uh, regardless of ethnicity. So until our country is ready to take on the breakdown of the way God designed the family, mainly fatherlessness, until we're ready to take that on, because that is causing more damage than really anything else when putting an obstacle in front of someone that is hoping to be able to live out their maximum God-given potential. Now, it doesn't mean it can't be overcome, and it doesn't mean that this is somehow speaking down to single mothers who are working so hard to replace the gulf that has been left by the father who was never involved or the father who is in the house but won't get involved or the father uh, that, uh, that, that left after being there for a while, whatever the case may be. Uh, it, it's just the data says what it says, and that's not a disrespect to single mothers. Uh, there's a lot of single mothers that uh, without them it would only be worse and, and, and single mothers that are the only hope for children. But the data is the data. The insult of the father being absent from the home spiritually, emotionally, and or physically is the greatest obstacle put in front of any child. And so this is a great time to celebrate if you have a father that is involved in your life because uh, that, that, that is the greatest asset that you could have uh, or to once again as dads to be reminded that you cannot be replaced. And maybe there's something that you need to change about the way that you are living your life. So that's just a little message for Father's Day coming up this weekend. Let's pray, and then let's jump right in the middle of uh, today's lesson. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you, Lord, uh, for, for showing us, again, even as a church, uh, that maybe sometimes our strategies are, are man-made, not God-made, and they're flawed, uh, and maybe the way that we see ourselves, uh, as Paul instructed us, which has been the theme of this series, to assess ourselves, to, to answer the question, are we even of the faith? Do we pass the test that, that Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God, your seed abides in us or not as we walk through this important study of something that is, can be as is, is devastated, if not more so, than someone who just knows they're lost, and that is the illusion that you're saved. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so let, let's, let's look at it. This, is a, this, this chapter really spoke to me because it, it, there's a lot of things in here that you know, even throughout our Bible studies and throughout some of our men's discipleship strategy we had talked about before. I had one of the men in the Wednesday Bible study says, I'm reading this book, and it's as if this guy has been in our Bible studies. But, but there's also some things in here that we've really never thought about. And this is one. This is how the church approaches the two big religious holidays or Christian holidays in our country, one being Easter Sunday, the other being Christmas Eve services. And, um, and, and, and I was really taken back by looking at this, and, and it starts out with you know, a young pastor, the one who wrote this book, Pastor Dean and Sarah from Tallahassee. He said, you know, I was all excited because it was, it was my first ever Easter service as pastor right out of seminary. And, and he talks about the local church. Those of you that may not, be, may not know that much about Christian culture, Easter Sunday is the Super Bowl for, for the local church. 
I mean, he talks about this. You're going to have the biggest crowds of the year. You're going to add extra services. You're going to add extra chairs. If it's the Catholic Church, you're going to have more times that where you can come to Mass than you ever do before. Uh, and, of course, if you get all your social media ready and you got your special graphics and, and your social media campaigns, all the people of the church are being told, on your way out, grab a handout, get in your neighborhood, uh, hand it out, invite people to church, and, and, and you get extra volunteers. Oh, the worship team. The worship team is preparing for it to be the, the, the all-star praise and worship songs involving the resurrection, uh, involving what Christ did for us uh, on the cross. Uh, you know, if it's Christmas Eve, it's going to be, you know, all these Christmas. Mary, did you know? And, of course, she did, but I don't get into that again this year. But anyway, so you go through all this this preparation for these services. The church goes all out for Easter and Christmas Eve, with Easter being the Super Bowl and Christmas Eve being, a, a, you know, a pretty close second. Uh, and, and, and it says after the, the, this has been done, all this stuff, it says the church staff, I love this word to use, sits around in wonderful exhaustion. They're exhausted by all the effort. And everybody says, man, what a crowd. Man, we had a crowd. And man, the services, they are a buzz. And Pastor Dina Sarah said he, he did his first, and he got a lot of compliments on, on how good the service was. But then after Easter Sunday, then comes next Sunday, and he said he was shocked. He said they, their, their, their uh, church was right around 400 people at the time. On Easter Sunday, they had increased to, to, to more than double that. I think he said 1,100 and something people. Over 1,000 came. And they pulled out all the extra chairs and all that. So the Sunday after Easter, they get out all the extra chairs again, but there's no need for them. There's no need for the overflow room. There's no need for the extra chairs as a matter of fact, he said the following Sunday, they usually have around 400. He said he remembers the number, 398. So where did all the extra people go? Why do we only need these extra times and these extra seats and these extra volunteers on Christmas Eve and Easter Sunday, but then when these special services are over, these crowds that come to these services don't come back. Very few of them ever come back. Why? Why is that? And so Dean and Sarah says he realized that the approach to all this was all wrong. He realized that we had done all this strategy to try to reach people that are not believers, to reach people that, that, that are kicking the tires on Christianity. We're bringing them in to tell them what tell them the gospel to tell them about christianity to tell them something that we assume they don't know but he says he realized that's really not true the people who come and pack out the church on easter sunday and on christmas eve are mainly cultural christians unsaved christians because to them easter sunday and christmas eve is a given i mean they're going to be at church as part of their cultural Christianity. An unbeliever usually doesn't go to church on Easter Sunday. Easter may not be the best way to reach out to those who don't believe, or really it may not be the best way to grow the church. Because he makes a good point, unbelievers may have jelly beans and Easter bunnies, and they may look for eggs, but outside of that, the unbeliever 
doesn't really care about Easter. Outside of that, other than Christmas trees and Santa Claus, and the unbeliever really doesn't care about Christmas Eve from a spiritual standpoint. And so and if you ever pay attention with cultural Christians, if you were ever in their homes on Easter and on Christmas Eve, you will find that the secular parts of these holidays dominate the presentation most of the time. There's very few discussion, very little discussion about the spiritual side of what actually is being recognized on Christmas Eve and on Easter Sunday. So the holiday is a glorified celebration of spring, as far as Easter is concerned, uh, for the unbeliever. And it really, to the unbeliever, unbeliever, is just some American tradition. There's no concept about what is really being recognized. The resurrection of Jesus Christ to them is irrelevant to Easter. I don't need the resurrection. I'm talking about unbelievers. I've got my bunny. I've got my eggs. I've got my, my, my pastel-colored suit to put my kids in. Now, over here to the cultural Christian, the spiritual concept is there, but it's just a cultural experience for them, but in a different way uh, because they're going to be at church on one of the Easter Sunday services, and they're going to be at church on Christmas Eve, but it's all just part of tradition for them, but it's, it's a little different feel. An unbeliever isn't intrigued to come to an Easter extravaganza, and I love when he said this about our assumption that, that we just throw Easter out there and throw Christmas out there, and all these unbelievers just flock to the church. When I say unbeliever, people who acknowledge they're an unbeliever. And he says that isn't true, and he asked a question, and I thought about it. Anybody that is a follower of Jesus, is there anything anybody can do to get you to come to a mosque for Ramadan? No. I'm not going to a mosque because I'm not Muslim, nor do I share their view of God and their view of Jesus. So they could put pamphlets in my mailbox. They can invite me all they want. I'm not going because I know that's something that I don't believe. Uh, so why do we think people who reject Christianity and don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is or maybe have never been presented of the gospel and just live a secular life that somehow a pamphlet in their mailbox is the day they say, you know what, I want to check into this Jesus. If that was the case, you probably would have a bigger crowd come back the next Sunday as opposed to having about the same or even less. See, it's more likely that the overwhelming majority of these people are just cultural Christians. And this is two markers for them every year. They're going around Christmas and they're going Easter. So Easter as an outreach to the lost is overblown and overrated. Uh, you really probably would have a better chance just doing your job as a follower of Jesus of pinpointing people you know are lost and then finding a way for them to come to church with you. Uh, you know, Probably a better example is some of the things that we do involving the Rick and Bubba show. There's a lot of men that will come to hear me speak somewhere who are not believers because they like the Rick and Bubba show. They're not coming because they think tonight's the night I want to hear about Jesus. They're coming because they're thinking tonight's the night I might hear a funny story and I might get to hear this guy that I hear on the radio. And a lot of times they will encounter Christ, but that's not what brought them there. So going out announcing Easter to the lost and Christmas to the lost, the spiritual side of these holidays is really of no interest to the unbeliever. Uh, so it really isn't the best outreach tool. Uh, 
unchurched lost people don't show up to church in droves, and usually it is the unsaved cultural Christian who does. So the spike isn't from non-believers. Uh, it, it, it really isn't. And, and, and they, they didn't go out there and say, hey, man, I don't believe any of this, but I heard this service is going to be awesome, so I think I'll go. Now, the spike comes from cultural Christians who bring family members. That's usually where this spike comes from. You may not see them until next Easter, or you might see them on Christmas Eve. Uh, there'll be no need for extra chairs next week because cultural Christians see Easter and Christmas as something that must be attended. But there's no need to make a chair for them the next Sunday because they're not coming. Because it's, it's a cultural experience, which means Easter and Christmas are part of it, but the rest of it is not important to them for the most part. And it says Christmas Eve services, very much the same. It's expected family, uh, you know, uh, family pressure. I know that when I was growing up as a cultural Christian and I got around Easter and I got around Christmas Eve, my grandmother was going to pressure us to go. My mom and dad, because of pressure usually from my grandmother, might pressure us to go as well. It's expected. The family says, we're going to be there. You're going to sit next to mom or you're going to sit next to grandmama or me and all and and, uh, you know, and, and you know what, a cultural Christian, you can hand a cultural Christian a, a candle and, and they'll light it and they'll sing Silent Night. They have no problem with that. A cultural Christian is not anti-Christmas Eve service, is not anti-Easter service, is not anti-holding a candle, is not anti-singing Christmas songs, not anti-singing about the resurrection. They'll do it on Easter and Christmas Eve. And so this is where maybe the strategy is off. The problem is cultural Christianity puts holiday traditions above the actual meaning of the holiday. It's just a tradition. Uh, are you going to be at church Easter? Hey, you bet on it. Are you going to be at church Christmas Eve? Absolutely. Love when they light those candles and sing Silent Night. Uh, do you live out your life as a follower of Jesus? No. But I'll be there Easter and I'll be there Christmas Eve. So the problem is where the church strategy might need to change is that a lot of times the presentation from the church is to lost people who know they're lost, as opposed to rearranging this opportunity to try to confront the cultural Christian with their cultural Christianity. That's a That would be a better approach, meaning you want to go deeper. You don't want to get up there and present the gospel as if these people have never heard it before. 90% of them have. What you need to do is ask the question, does your life look the way it should in response to this? So if this has really happened in your life, where's the proof of it? That's what happened to me. Now, that's how I was saved, is that somebody actually took that approach with me during marriage counseling. Yet, you know, usually you go in and you'll hear a very 100-level presentation of the gospel. And you know what all the cultural Christians say? Yeah, I believe that. I there's never a time in my life I didn't believe the gospel. Now, there was a large period of my life I wasn't redeemed, and I wasn't reconciled to a holy God, but I certainly believed the gospel, had no issue with it whatsoever. You give me a gospel message in the darkest days of my life on Easter Sunday or Christmas Eve, you know what I say? Absolutely. No problem with that whatsoever. Don't expect me to be here next Sunday, but no problem with this at all. I've checked my box for the year. I've done something that is expected of me, as a cultural Christian, and you know what? I even make it a priority. But you know what? When you go see me Christmas Eve, when I actually gather with family, I'm not reading Scripture. We're opening gifts. 
Uh, we're, we're talking about Santa Claus. Uh, we're talking about Christmas trees, and we're talking about what we're eating. Same thing to do with Easter. We look in the Easter egg hunt and the bunnies and all that are much higher priority than anything to do with the reality of what God had to do because my sin was so wretched. And that's exactly what he's talking about. That needs to be confronted because it's not confronted on these services. And it's usually you're only one of, a, one of two shots, maybe three shots, at the cultural Christian you get every year. And so it needs to be restructured. He said the, the person who comes into an Easter service or Christmas Eve service already knows the facts. They just, don't, they just don't hear anything about biblical standard of actually being redeemed. You have their attention. Address what these two holidays really mean. Speak about the things like holiness, sanctification, being set apart, the severity of sin, obedience, etc. You don't hear these things on Christmas Eve. You don't hear these things on Easter. So you know what happens? The cultural Christian comes in and is made perfectly comfortable again in his or her, in her delusion that she's actually been redeemed or he's actually been redeemed. And that's why this is so dangerous. Unsaved Christians need forgiveness of sins, not better church attendance. If you harp on church attendance, they may think that's all they need to do to be saved. That's another strategy he talks about. Look, I've done it. Pastors love to make jokes about it. Well, it's Easter. Good to see some of y'all. I'll see y'all again at Christmas. Well, see, the problem with making those kind of jokes is that they might get in their mind that it's not that I need to be saved. I just need to come to church more, and that'd make me more saved. That's the flawed approach of that, uh, of that kind of uh, joking around and making those comments. Because I remember when I was lost, what did, what did like relatives of mine or friends of mine that knew I was a problem, hey, Rick, you need to get back in church, man. Oh, so that's salvation? Just get, get back into church. Now, that never happened because I wasn't saved, so really there was just no. But what if I had just bought into, oh, okay, so if I go to going to church, say, eight times a year versus two times a year, so I'll probably be saved then. So church attendance is what saves me. No, no, no. No, the approach means to be, we're glad you're here. Now let's talk about whether you're saved or not. That, that, that's, that's a better approach. Uh, so this I need to get to church more stuff uh, leads to another you know, false uh, delusion that somehow that's going to save you. No, you need to be redeemed by believing the gospel, repenting of your sin, and being made alive in Christ. Church attendance will be the result of that, uh, but it will not accomplish that. Oh, that's good. You know, if we if we submit to the authority of Christ, repent of our sins, and we are we are made alive in Christ, and we said this for before, then church attendance will be the result of that actually taking place, but it will not accomplish that. I don't. I didn't start going to church to be saved. I started going to church because I was saved, and and I and I certainly looked at the message of Easter and Christmas Eve a lot different after I truly was saved. So this is the thing he starts talking about in the book, if you have it, on page 92 and 93. And this is the part that he titles The Strangeness of Cultural Christianity. And, and I agree with this, and I, I'm a redeemed cultural Christian, so I was part of this strangeness. And, and he says, you need to show the cultural Christian how ludicrous cultural Christianity is, especially on Christmas Eve, and Easter. He says, on Christmas Eve, they acknowledge that the long-awaited Messiah 
has been born, the climax of the entire storyline of the Old Testament and the basis for all understanding of the New Testament is found in a manger. But then here they are, cultural Christians, dressed up, sitting with family for the special service centered on the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. He said, so when I changed my approach on my Christmas Eve sermons, I now make it a priority to challenge everyone in the room to not acknowledge or even celebrate Christmas, but to actually respond to Christmas. Think about what you're doing tonight. You're holding a candle proclaiming that Jesus is the light of the world. You just knew every word to a song about angels singing glory to the newborn king and rejoicing about God and sinners reconciled. And he says, so I make them I make them look at what they're singing. I make them think about why we're here, what this really means. I won't let them pivot to the to the cultural, you know, American traditions of Christmas Eve. I want them to deal with what we're actually saying tonight. I think that's great. He said, while I try to have uh, tact and not be condescending or judgmental, I do want the cultural Christian to see how bizarre it is if the day after Christmas nothing changes besides the Christmas decorations being put away. We may joke about the neighbor who leaves the Christmas lights up year-round, but really, in a figurative sense, Christians should be, like, should be likewise. They should be responding to Christmas year-round. If we really do believe the words of the carols and the world-altering significance of that nativity scene, the bottom line is that Christmas is a strange thing for a cultural Christian to celebrate. And I want them to be confronted with, the, with that reality because it's ultimately for their ultimate benefit. Of course, I don't want them to be comfortable in their cultural Christianity. Why am I so concerned with them, with them being comfortable in that? When did we decide that our whole approach uh, to cultural Christianity is to keep reassuring people that they're okay and then we make them per- perfectly comfortable with going to hell? It makes no sense. And he says, so what we need to do is say, hey, you keep showing up for these two services. Can I tell you what these services are about? Do you realize how bizarre it is that you've come in here and sang these things and said these things and claimed to believe these things, but yet you're unchanged? That's strange. And so he's not afraid to take that on, which I think is phenomenal. He said, the way Christmas is laid out, he said, it's possible to row through Christmas and never be confronted with the truth. He said, you can go through an entire Christmas season and never even be confronted that you need to follow the very one whose birth you are now trying to acknowledge. And, and he said, one of the things that was really weird to him is he said, did you, if you read the book, and I've seen this too, you can be sitting in a coffee shop where everything in there is completely secular. I mean, you can be sitting in one that won't even have holiday cups or won't say the word Christmas, okay? And everybody in there is just perfectly okay. And he talks about this scene. He looks around, and there was kind of a hip version of Joy to the World that comes on, and everybody's tapping their feet, and everybody's singing along, and he's hearing these lyrics, Joy to the World, and these people are drinking their coffee, singing along with it, tapping their feet, 
and it has no impact on them. It's like they're not even aware of what joy to the world even says. Joy to the world. I mean, the king has come. They're just singing about what, you know, most, the most significant event in, in, in history, one of the two, but it doesn't have any impact. So we've made everything so comfortable, you can even sing some really deep. I'm not talking about dashing through the snow. I'm not, I'm not talking about walking in a winter wonderland. I'm not talking about Blue Christmas. I'm talking about the same people that sing Blue Christmas, uh, you know, Jingle Bells, Dashing Through the Snow, Winter Wonderland. These same people sing the spiritual Christmas songs, and they pretty much are the same. I mean, the lyrics are just kind of, it's just another Christmas song. And the pastor who wrote this book rightly has concluded that that really shouldn't be. Then he says, if you think being a cultural Christian <laughs> with Easter, I mean, with Christmas is strange, try Easter. How in the world does any cultural Christian walk into an Easter service and be confronted with the resurrection and the crucifixion? And they just kind of, how does the Easter bunny find his way into your life if you understand what Easter is actually saying took place? He said, th this really, really hit him when he started thinking about, about Easter. And, um, uh, and, and, he, and he talked about this, and I thought this was really, really cool. He says, when it comes to Easter, he, 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 he went into this, um, uh, this, this moment where he was confronted with this when he was exposed to it. He said, first of all, let's talk about Easter. The Apostle Paul thought the resurrection was such a big deal that he claimed if Jesus had not been raised, the entire Christian faith is in vain. Write this down, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. This is when Paul says we should be pitied above everyone. If the resurrection didn't take place, then Christianity is, 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 is completely in vain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ does many things, but chief among them might be proving Christmas wasn't a hoax. And by the way, you know, we've talked about this before. You know, the baby Jesus is over. That's over. It's wonderful to remember what God did at Christmas, that God came to us. But as we remember Christmas, we need to prepare for the return. As we remember what happened on Easter, he's not the lowly servant. He's not hanging on a cross anymore. When he walked out of that tomb and ascended to heaven, we're supposed to be remembering these moments that changed the world and offered reconciliation and redemption, we need to remember them while preparing for what's coming next. And that's his return. And I assure you, the baby Jesus or the crucified Jesus and the lowly servant washing people's feet is not the one we're going to encounter. And we better start looking to that in the times we're living in right now. I don't know when he's coming back. He told us, all these things are birth pains, but I got news for you. I don't know when he's coming back because no one does other than the father. But let me tell you this. If birth pains, if that's the analogy he used for the things you should see going on as we get close, that woman is screaming. Now, I don't know when the baby's going to be born, but she's in pain. And we need to be preparing for that. And one of the ways to prepare is to get right 
whether we're redeemed at all. You know what Jesus said? It's going to hit you, and you're not going to expect it, so you better be ready. And one of the things that get us ready, what, is to understanding what he did so we can prepare for what's to come. So he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves Christmas was no hoax. And he says that deserves more than figgy pudding and halls decked with bows of uh, boughs of holly. How much more then is Easter deserving of more than one day in our entire year? And listen to this, and I've seen this too, and I actually lived this out. He said, I first was exposed to cultural Christians' understanding of Easter during a spring break trip to the beach while I was in high school. This really hit me because this still goes on today. And, and if this goes on in your life, you need to listen, and you need to listen right now, okay? Especially if you're the adult in the, in the house or one of two adults in the house, and you have people that are under your authority, and you allow this to go on. So anyway, he says, each year for spring break, the majority of my class would head down to one of the beaches closest to my hometown to enjoy our week off from school. Everyone would chip in to cover the cost of renting a beach house, and a a few of the cool parents, I love that, would come as chaperones. We would have several houses along the beach full of high school students, one designated cool mom per house. This particular spring break, Easter fell over the first weekend that we were at the beach. On Friday and Saturday, people were drinking a lot of beer, and the beach was full of drunken high school students, while the cool moms pretended they had no clue. It was essentially a beer-themed weekend except for one day, Easter Sunday. Nobody engaged in underage drinking whatsoever, and I was curious to why that was. Had the crew run out of beer? Did they get caught with fake IDs while buying the drinks at the gas station? I asked one of my buddies why today everyone had switched to bottled water and Diet Coke, and he looked offended. This is hilarious. Sad. I would even ask the question, come on, bro, we can't get wasted on Easter? That's just messed up. But when the sun rose on Monday morning and Easter was over, the drinking came back to full speed. So he's saying, these people acted offended that I would say, why aren't we drinking today? And I guess they're assuming that God's not offended that they were underage drinking and participating in drunkenness and who knows what else up to Easter. I guess God wasn't offended that there were adults who were supposed to be supervising that turned a blind eye to underage illegal drinking and drunkenness, trying to be the cool parent, I guess. And then Easter Sunday comes and suddenly everybody's, everybody becomes holy. Hey, we can't get drunk on Easter, man. You know, I guess probably these cool parents, probably would they try to get out and read a Bible verse or something or you know, pretend they're going, I, I don't know. But see, it, they acted offended that he wouldn't know why they weren't drinking on Easter. You know why he asked that? Because you were just drinking Saturday. And then what did he see? Y'all start drinking again on Monday. And they're going to be offended? See, that's cultural Christianity in a nutshell. Easter was a time we, let's stop for a minute. You know, i got to be honest with you. I, I think our Lord and Savior would have preferred to have any day and if you're not going to be devoted to him on the other days and somehow you're going to pretend to be right with him on Easter Sunday, I think he probably finds that highly offensive. According to Scripture, that he does. I mean, I think about things like in Matthew 11 when he's taking on these three cities, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and uh, he, he's talking to, uh, to these uh, Chorazin, 
he's talking to these, and I've been to Israel. These, these three places are really close to each other. But this is where he did 90% of his earthly ministry. They saw the miracles. They saw all the biggies. And he said to them who knew better, who knew who he was, who saw what he did, he said to them, he said, how much worse will it be on the day of judgment for you than it'll be for Sidon, uh, for Tyre, and also for us, uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, all who were destroyed by God's wrath. He said, those cities, if they had seen what y'all saw, they would have repented in ashes and dust. But you know exactly who I am. You even claim to know who I am. You saw all the miracles, yet you remained unchanged. How much worse will it be for you on Judgment Day? Worse? Why is that? Because you knew better. You knew things that these other people didn't know. So the cultural Christian, I got bad news for you because I used to be one too. We make God sick. He's got less tolerance for us than he does to the person that says, I don't know any of this and I don't believe any of it. At least they're consistent. Now, they'll die in their sin and go to hell if, they don't, if they're not redeemed. But if they knew the things that the cultural Christian knew, they might repent. But the cultural Christian has just become so comfortable with things like this, drinking all week at the beach except on Easter Sunday, and then starting it back up, the drunken and the under. You know, by the way, underage drinking is illegal. And all that just starts back up right after Easter. If you happen to be down, if you're at spring break during Easter, that's how the cultural Christian operates. And how bizarre that type of behavior is. And it's so bizarre, that's why the Bible says it's really unbelief. Because if they really knew me, they couldn't act that way. And I'm a recovering cultural Christian, so I totally get that. So he goes on to say, since Jesus rose from the grave, let's not get drunk on Sunday. Let's wait till Monday. Is that our Easter message? Since Jesus rose from the grave, let's don't get drunk on Easter Sunday. Now we still will on Monday. So Jesus is not Lord of Monday. This is cultural Christianity on display. There's a difference between faith as verbal affirmation and faith as conviction. Isn't that true? The former dresses up for Easter. The latter is clothed in Christ. Ooh. It's one thing to dress up for Easter. It's a complete, it's a complete new thing to be clothed in Christ. And the verse he uses there, if you have your Bible or, or something with your Bible on it, the verse he uses there is from Romans. If you have your Bible or something with your Bible on it, turn to Romans 13, uh, and we'll look at uh, 13, 14. Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Did you hear that example he gave? you think there's anybody that is taking that approach? No. They're just dressed up for Easter. They're not clothed in Christ. Since Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday, let's not get drunk. Let's wait till Monday. Mm. That's cultural Christianity in a nutshell. So then he moves on to the disconnect. He said, most unsaved cultural Christians did not get coerced into coming to a service on Easter or Christmas Eve. Most cultural Christians, Easter church attendance is a non-negotiable priority. Cultural Christians celebrate Easter, but they are indifferent to the resurrection. 
How strange to celebrate Easter if on Monday everything goes back to normal. How, how can anyone truly believe what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, truly believe it, and Monday just turns out to be another day? I, I'm, I'm with the pastor. I'm not sure that that can be done. As followers of Christ, Easter changes everything. Not one thing in our life wasn't impacted by the fact that Jesus rose from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Write down Ephesians verse one. I mean, chapter 1, verse 20. Let's say that again. Not one thing in our life wasn't impacted by the fact that Jesus rose from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Why are these services so comfortable for cultural Christians? The God-man was brutally murdered and raised from the dead. These are not normal things. How can it be treated as so normal? You realize what we're talking about on Easter? This is even stranger than not being impacted by, by Christmas. This has to create some, some sort of disconnect unless, and here's the problem, we never preach to the disconnect. Maybe the disconnect just rolls on so comfortably because it's never pointed to. I, I remember, and I love the local church, and, and I'm here to serve my church or whatever church God calls me to in any period of my life. I've only been a member of two churches in, in my life as, a, as an adult because I wasn't saved when I was a child. Uh, I wasn't saved when I was a teenager, so I attended some churches. I've been a member of two churches as an adult. And I, I will say that sometimes the way church operates, I guess because I left the church for 13 years and I work in, in business and out in the world, I guess sometimes the strategy seems bizarre to me. And I remember this when I started t teaching in youth ministry. And I found at the church that I'm a member of, I found it extremely odd, and it ties into Easter services and Christmas Eve services. We were so engrossed in our graduation service with the seniors, because I was teaching 12th grade, that we didn't even do a message to them in Bible study. Now, they had one coming up in the service, in all fairness. But here we were in Bible study. We would do that. We would unpack Scripture. We would disciple them every Sunday. But on the one Sunday, when every single senior was finally there, because the parents are gonna make th make sure they see their senior in the cap and gown, even though the last time we saw that senior was the first uh, the first Sunday of of the new church year. I mean, there would be seniors, twelfth graders, that I might see one time, maybe two, but they're gonna be there on the day they do the cap and gown recognition at the church and their little baby picture comes up on the screen. They're going to be there then. And you know who else is going to be there? Their parents and grandparents and whoever else can come. Now, in all fairness, our church does a message at the service, but we weren't doing any Bible study during the Bible study hour other than teaching them how to put their cap and gown on and where they're supposed to stand in the church. And I remember thinking, you got to be kidding me. You mean to tell me the only Sunday that we have nearly 100% attendance by every 12th grader, we're not going to give them a Bible study? We got Now, how long does it take to tell them where they're supposed to stand in the service and tell them where to hang their cap and gown when they take it off and somebody will take it and go hang it somewhere? How long does that take? All they do is get their name called out and they walk. 
we're not going to do any Bible study for them. And so we changed it. You know what? In all fairness, people heard that, that logic and they're like, this doesn't make any sense at all. But it went on for years. So that means for years, 12th graders were coming to the Bible study hour that they rarely or ever attended and nobody did a Bible study. But, but see, that didn't make any sense. See, that's once again not understanding. We're talking about people who think they're saved that aren't. So we must point to, so I was given most, uh, sometimes we rotate, but most of these years I was given the message and they're sitting in there with their parents and I would get up there and you know what I would do? I would point to that disconnect. As a matter of fact, I was only able to speak to the seniors luncheon one time because you know what I said when I got my shot? Some of you are wondering if your child is ready to go out into a lost world and impact the world for the kingdom of God. If this is the first time that I've seen you, probably not. If this is the first time I've ever seen your senior, the day that he or she put her cap and gown on, or maybe it's the second time I've seen them since the first Sunday we started the new year, I'll go ahead and step out on a limb. Your child's probably not ready. Now, I didn't get to speak anymore after that, but at least, at least the opportunity was there because you know why? Why am I not speaking to the disconnect when I've got them? They're there. They're not coming back. Maybe they'll come back if we speak to the disconnect. Maybe we challenge them. How can you be, how can this be so casual for you? And there's nothing wrong with that. It saved my life when somebody did that for me. Why is that? Why are we so afraid of that? I mean, there's a way to do it. Like the pastor said, we want to be tactful and, and we don't want to be sanctimonious and self-righteous, but we, we do need to be aggressive and we, we don't need to be afraid to address the disconnect. They may not be aware of it. It's, it's, as he said, it's for their ultimate benefit. So the question is, it's probably comfortable for them because it's, they're never challenged on why they're there. He says, we're creeping closely to uh, these, these turning into, and I love this, and it was very, very convicting. He said, if we're not careful, and I agree with him, if the, if the church isn't careful, we're going to let Easter and Christmas go the way of St. Patrick's Day. That's where it's headed because I'm telling you, these days are losing their significance because we're allowing the world and traditions and the American version of Christmas and Easter to take over. And one of the reasons that happens is we let people comfortably have a cultural experience every Easter and every Christmas Eve, and that needs to change. The opportunity is what I just said. The biggest audience is people who think they are believers. We must make sure they don't leave for the food still reassured in that illusion. Or will they finally understand the issue in which the church rises and falls? Due to the truth of the holiday, uh, conversations can be less awkward. He talked about this. He said, here's the ways you can do it. Is there any better opportunity to talk about the gospel, to talk about what really happened, what God really did, then you're already talking about it. My goodness, what if you just sang joy to the world? Hey, have you ever listened to the lyrics of that? Let's talk about that a little bit. If there's ever two times a year when talking about Jesus isn't awkward, it ought to be around Christmas and Easter. So these are wonderful opportunities. So you know what? Don't be afraid to use some of the images of the season. They're everywhere. Like I said, joy to the world. How about this? Charlie Brown does a good job. Linus gets up there and he says, I'll tell you what Christmas is all about. 
why not use that as a starting point? You talk about it, uh, you know, maybe you've got some of your, your children there and you go through this or whatever. Maybe you're watching it with some friends. And you say, you know what, let's talk about what Linus just said. Use these things. Uh, f force that disconnect. Force them to, to assess if they believe it. The, the holiday spirit should not make the cultural Christian, I love this, more comfortable. It ought to make the cultural Christian less comfortable. I love that. The holiday spirit should not be used to make a cultural Christian more comfortable. It ought to be used to make the cultural Christian less comfortable. Focus on the oddness of the way they're living their life in spite of these things they sing and they watch and they have all over their house. It's, it's a great opportunity. So God who loves me is not the same as God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Hey, God loves me. Yeah, he does. But let me tell you what God did. God also became the God-man, and, and, and he, he came here, and you know what? Our sin crucified him, and he had to go to the cross, and he had to be crucified because of the nastiness of our sin. Let's talk about that. Look what Paul says, uh, I mean Luke says, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, talking about this very thing, good place to go. Acts chapter 2, and then we go to verse 36, and this is what we read. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There, there's your conversation starter. Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, when, you, when you're talking about Easter, how about 1 Corinthians? Let's go there. Uh, if you have something uh, to write on or you've got your, your Bible with you or something with your Bible on it, let's go to 1 Corinthians and let's look at um, chapter 15, uh, 1 through 8. Here it is. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold, big if, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Are you holding fast to it? Are you taking these things you claim to believe? Are they in your life? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, why is Paul telling us that? I'll get to it in a minute. Then he appeared to James, then to all apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appears also to me. And then he goes on to talking about this, the, the grace not be wasted, which you've heard me talk about a lot in here. So, so why not take the time when you're talking about Easter and say, you know, we believe this by faith, the resurrection, but this faith is based on a lot of evidence. Let me show you here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about all these people that documented that they saw Jesus after he was crucified, including 500 people at one time. As a matter of fact, if you go into history, you will find that there's more documentation about Jesus Christ, the crucifixion, and the resurrection than some of the most well-known people of history that no one questions them at all. Alexander the Great. Does, we don't have near the information on Alexander the Great as we have on Jesus. We don't, we don't even have as much information on Julius Caesar as we do on Jesus Christ. And the writing about these men, especially Alexander the Great, it, it, it'd almost be like, I'm, I, if I, if, it, it, let's say, let's just use an easy measurement. It's like if Alexander the Great lived and somebody wrote about him 10 feet away, 
Okay, that, that's how long, much history went away before somebody started writing about what they remembered. The, the writings about Jesus are like two feet away. I mean, the, the years are not even close, meaning there should be much more clarity. And historians say, boy, it really, if, it, if it's this amount of time, we don't even question it. The documentation about Jesus and the resurrection, they're, they're, they meet the standard with flying colors. They're nowhere near too far away, and they're closer than other, these other things that we don't even question. So you get in the Scripture, and you hear things like 500 witnesses. These are the kind of things that we, we should be talking about when we get to these services. Um, and and, and the, uh, uh, the event that the disciples dealt with, um, you know, you've got to ask, okay, why did these disciples, you know, we talk about the raising of the chapter, I mean of the standard. We also talked about this. We have these disciples, they're dejected. They're demoralized. This is talked about in Luke 24, 21. Write that down, Luke 24, 21. They go from dejected, demoralized, Eeyore, poor, poor, pitiful us. Jesus, I guess, was another fake. We didn't understand it. Now they've killed him. We're all scattered. We're all afraid. They're going to kill us too. They go from that to after the resurrection and the receival of the Holy Spirit to men who are willing to be martyred. Who would do that? You know, I might die for something that I didn't know was a lie. I'd never be martyred for something I knew was a lie. Never. So, so why aren't we talking about that? Easter can start these kinds of conversations. So, so we don't need to waste it. There's all sorts of opportunity for you and I to take advantage of when it comes to these two big markers. And I think the thing we take away today as we get ready to close, number one, did I just talk about you in the way you approach Easter and Christmas? It, it, are those things that you attend, but there's not a lot of activity with you in the church other than that? And it's not about going to church. Like I said, I, don't, I, I didn't start going to church practically every Sunday to get saved. No, I found that when I was lost, even though I knew I should go to church, I still didn't, except when I was pressured to go on Easter and Christmas. No, when I started going and pursuing Christ is when I actually was saved. So that's question one. Is that you? Question two, are you someone that works in the church and, and you're still using that worn-out strategy of treating Easter and Christmas like this is a big outreach to the unbeliever? Because if you are, it's probably wrong, just based on the fact that we really don't see Easter and Christmas Eve lead to a lot of church growth and a lot of need for extra services, more volunteers. No, likely we need that because these are cultural Christians that are showing up in droves because that's what cultural Christians do when we get to Christmas and Easter. So maybe the approach should be challenging the cultural Christian to look at his or her life and ask the question, are you of the faith? Do you pass the test? How can you so easily sing these songs and acknowledge these things and be so unchanged by it? Don't get drunk on Sunday because that's the day he rose. Wait till Monday. So that's the two things we have to take away. I'll be on vacation next week. I thank you for your attention to these matters. I thank you for you know taking part in this Bible study. Use next week maybe to go back and review and look for some things maybe you missed. When I come back two weeks from, uh, from today, uh, then we'll get into just a little bit of chapter 10, and then we'll really jump, uh, really bury ourselves in 
um, a little bit of chapter 9, and then we'll bury ourselves in chapter 10. Let me pray for you. Hey, dads that are out there, I hope Father's Day goes great. Uh, if you're not the man that God's called you to be, Father's Day would be a great time to come into your family and say, Daddy's lost, but I've submitted to the authority of Christ. I have repented of my sin, and I'm a follower of Jesus now, and Jesus is going to change your daddy into the man you really need. If I can help you with that in any way, uh, you can contact me, Rick, at rickandbubba.com. Also, don't forget we have great resources available uh, for men to be discipled and to be reached at themanchurch.com. Thanks for being with us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. I pray, Lord, you go with us as we leave. May we never be the same. May you continue to sanctify us and turn us into people that only you can accomplish. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. Hey, this is Rick, and that concludes this week's Bible study. Thank you so much for being with us. If you'd like to go back and hear other Bible studies or maybe some that you've missed even in this series, you can find them by clicking the media button at burgessministries.com.